America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great day to look back at our history and the tangled issue of race in that history because it is the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Uh, many people off work, many people taking a look at where we stand, at the progress we've made, at progress we haven't made. We will be speaking uh, to uh, Juan Williams coming up, and uh, Juan Williams will be asking him about a, a new, what's called a shock poll, and it's a poll by reputable sources, by The Economist and YouGov, where they asked people if they supported the idea of a national holiday, a federal holiday in honor of Martin Luther King. And amazingly, fewer people support that poll, support that idea of a King holiday today than supported it back in 1983 when it became a federal holiday, when President Reagan signed the uh, legislation and it was passed overwhelmingly with Republican support why has support for the holiday gone down? We'll also be speaking about that with Ben Jealous, who is a former head of the NAACP. He says part of the problem is what he calls the three big lies about racism in America. Uh, we will get to that. There is a um, also new information about another less serious American obsession the obsession with UFOs. There have been more than 360 new UFO cases that have been reported to U.S. intelligence agencies since 2021. And yet when people are actually looking at the documents and what the federal government is saying about UFOs, people are very sure and writing about it that none of these sightings involve any kind of alien visitation. How can they be so sure? We will get to that. We will also get to uh, something that, that could be every bit as destructive and disturbing and unsettling as a, an alien visitation from another galaxy that would actually destroy the United States and wreck our economy. We're talking about the failure to raise the debt ceiling, and the potential of a U.S. default. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said that uh, we actually will hit our debt ceiling, barring some extraordinary shuffling around of money, which they're planning to do. We could hit that this week or next week or anytime soon. So what does that mean and why are people so hysterical about it? Or is this just an attempt to manipulate public opinion? Uh, we will get to that issue as well. And um, there's, there's more uh, about the direction of the Republican Party. Uh, is the Republican Party coming back with a new resolution and power? They just took over the House. Or is the Republican Party out of gas and out of ideas and out of leadership? Uh, Kellyanne Conway has an interesting piece about that, and she says, yeah, Trump can win in 2024, and it makes it sound like she worked for President Trump. She was his campaign manager in 2016, but uh, uh, 
Can he win? She says, well, he can, but there's a catch. And we will cover that catch right here on the Medved Show. Uh, 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, There is a new statue that was dedicated formally today that is supposed to commemorate the love between Coretta Scott King, who was such a gracious lady and such a picture of strength and helping to hold our country together in a very noble and selfless way after the assassination of her husband. And uh, this is supposed to be a statue that is meant to symbolize the love between Coretta Scott King and, uh, and Martin Luther King. And uh, it's supposed to recreate the experience uh, of her hugging him when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. They were hugging each other. And it is shaped vaguely like a heart. It, um, it looks like an alien visitation that we were talking about before. It's a very strange-looking statue. Uh, and it's planted in, in Boston, where, uh, which is where Coretta Scott King met Dr. Martin Luther King. We tell that story in my book, uh, God's Hand on America. And uh, she was uh, studying music as a soprano. She was uh, studying classical vocal music. And, uh, and Dr. King was in graduate school in uh, theology and philosophy and at the Boston University. And uh, that's where they met. That's why this is there. It is placed on Boston Common. And there are no faces There are no heads. They're just these arms wrapping each other. This is the way that it was reported uh, in CBS Boston locally uh, on the new MLK statue and what it is supposed to mean. Clip six. Today is the big day that we've all been waiting for, where we don't just get to see over the fence, we actually get to see behind the fence to the Embrace Monument. It'll be the first new monument in the Boston Common in more than 30 years. The 22-foot sculpture is located near the Parkman Bandstand, where in 1965, MLK Jr. led the first civil rights march in the Northeast from Roxbury to here. The Embrace memorializes the hug Dr. King shared with his wife Coretta after he won the Nobel Peace Prize prize in 1964. Organizers say it symbolizes the couple's time and presence in the city where they met while attending college. The nonprofit Embrace Boston raised $8 million to create the sculpture and an additional $2.5 million to preserve it. The Embrace is also in the shape of a heart, and so our logo is the aerial view, the side view. Uh, it's it's a, a heart. And so we want we want one of the messages that that stay in people's mind that this is one of the few memorials in this country uh, that is rooted on the story of a black family, uh, black love. Okay, the the monument is sort of bronze color. It's it's metallic, and again, no faces. But it 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 looks almost at one point as if there's a big snake that is being strangled here. It's an extremely unusual monument, and you can walk underneath the arms, but again, no faces, no heads. Uh, the Martin Luther King III spoke at the statue unveiling yesterday, a 6.5. This is such an amazing 
and wonderful occasion. And we are honored to participate in the unveiling of the Embrace Boston Memorial. It is a great pleasure to be a part of this unveiling ceremony for the memorial, which truly uh, signifies the bonds of love shared by my parents, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. And whenever I've come to Boston in the past, I've always felt a powerful bond of solidarity with this first great American city. Of course, it is the city where my parents met and fell in love and decided to create a family. And in a way, I owe my very existence to Boston as the place my parents found each other. And that uh, goes on. We will be speaking uh, with uh, Ben Jealous, who is the uh, former head of the NAACP. Uh, he's also a professor of practice at University of Pennsylvania and uh, author of a new book called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. Coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Medved Show. I've known about Ben Jealous for years. He's a very prominent civil rights leader. He was the youngest ever national president of the NAACP. He um, is somebody who today is um, uh, the CEO for People for the American Way. He's um, actually been involved with the Sierra Club as a leader. But I didn't know about Ben Jealous before his new book. And the new book is uh, called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. And it's already drawing great praise and great attention. But what I didn't know was about what complicated and fascinating family background he had. Uh, and one of the things you find out in this book is that uh, Ben is a cousin of Dick Cheney, Thomas Jefferson, yes, and Robert E. Lee. <laughs> and uh, he's also uh, one of the more prominent black American leaders in the country. Uh, Mr. Jealous, it is pleasure to speak to you, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Brother Medved. It's great to be on with you. Well, I, I appreciate it. And, and again, you tell so many family stories, and I was thinking of the tremendous popularity of Roots, which is one of those books that really changed the country and changed attitudes all over the country. Uh, how is it that your family, for so many generations, going back to slavery and before the Civil War, obviously, how is it that your family was able to preserve so many detailed records about so many extraordinary and colorful characters? You know, uh, it's a great question. I was blessed, first of all, to have a grandmother. She just passed in, in August. She lived to be 105. Wow. And and I was um, the grandchild who spent the most time in her kitchen listening to her stories. 
prior generations it had been the women and they handed down these stories you know and uh but i also got a lot of help you know from researchers at harvard from henry lewis gates jr dna he spent two years with my dna to figure out the story behind the meaning of the book <laughs> uh which which really kind of blew me away but you know I start the book, one of the early chapters, with, with a woman uh, who I met at a conference, Michael, and, you know, it was after the cocktails, there was wine during dinner, I probably was a little bit more candid than I would normally be, and we quickly got to a place, I was talking to her husband, and I said, yeah, I think your wife's family used to own my mama's family, and then they switched seats, and she scrutinized me, and all of a sudden, this very genteel, you know, Virginia lady accent. She said, come here, baby, give me a hug. I always knew I had black family. And that just opened up a window. Uh, and Henry Louis Gates Jr. would later confirm that we were, in fact, cousins. We both descend from Thomas Jefferson's grandma and from several other people in common. And also on that line is Robert E. Lee. You know, a core conviction of my book is that we really have to recognize that we are just one, not just one human family. I think we all get that academically, but really in a much more immediate way, one American family, and we need to start acting like it. Now, I'm not the only civil rights leader, by the way, who you know has kind of surprised family connections. Strom Thurmond's a cousin to Al Sharpton. Um, <laughs> really? John McCain. Yeah, John McCain, who, whose family had a huge plantation in Mississippi. The McCain Plantation in West Point is a big plantation. I know several civil rights leaders who are re- related to John McCain, including Merle Evers. Wow. Um, you know, and so it's just, you know, the American family tree, those of us who come from old families, is much more of a family braid. You know, the fact that both Dick Cheney and I are cousins and Barack Obama and Dick Cheney are distant cousins led David Gregory on Meet the Precious to look at me. We were kind of on a commercial break. He's like, any like every black person's cousin? I was like, I'm certain that's not how Vice President Cheney thinks of himself, but I get your point. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, the 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 point that you make, and it it is something that you learn from your grandmother, uh, Mamie Todd Bland, uh, is this this saying, which is the title of the book: "Never forget our people were always free." You have three big lies that you are meaning to puncture in this book, and the first one is that it's always been this way: that slavery is eternal, that racism is eternal; it's inevitable. Uh, and basically nothing you can do to put an end to racism. You say that's not true. No, that's right. You know, there was a, there was a time when I was president of NAACP. I was flying from Atlanta to Memphis, sitting next to a man with a Confederate flag over his heart, which is kind of an awkward pairing, right, the two of us sitting there. You should have cited and, your cousin Robert. Yeah, right? Well, it turned out, you know, he and I got in this whole conversation about affirmative action, and I talked about, you know, what it did for white women. They're the, by large, you know, by far the biggest beneficiaries. And he's like, yeah, but like, you don't understand. He's like, I'm the anomaly in my family. He said, I'm wearing this shirt because I went to Ole Miss. I was on the football team. I realized it was an, an old booster shirt. And he said, you know, he said, the only reason I'm not in prison is I got a football scholarship, and now I'm an executive in memphis he's like but i'm coming from from back home in southern georgia and i'm worried about the boys my family when we the boys in my family been headed to prison ever since we came over here as part of the georgia penal colony uh-huh. and this reality of families being trapped multi-generationally in poverty exists for whites it exists for blacks there's 16 million and change whites in poverty 8 million blacks 
And what Dr. King was trying to teach all of us when he was organizing the Poor People's Campaign, and that's when he was assassinated, was organizing that campaign, is that racism is a wedge designed to split us and that everybody who's disempowered because their political numbers are cut because they're divided on lines of race is hurt. And that ultimately, if you go back far enough, that wedge was created by a colonial system that was threatened by European indentured servants uh, and penal colony members rebelling alongside African slaves. And so the three big lies I get into, I'd say the most important one this weekend is the lie that racism only hurts black folks and people of color. And the reality is racism hurts everybody who's trapped into poverty because the ultimate purpose was to make sure that the poor were split so they couldn't rebel together to demand a better wage or demand better education for their kids. Well, this is this is one of those things where uh, obviously among the many, many uh, devastating misconceptions that are spewed out there and that many Americans embrace are the ideas that um, uh, the most of the crime and most of the drug addiction and, and most of the family breakdown in this country occurs only in the black community. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is that when it comes to beneficiaries of welfare, when it comes to uh, uh, drug deaths, when it comes to uh, murders, uh, it, white people are the majority as they are in most things. And, and again, this is one of those reasons that I have so much trouble with the term white privilege because it implies almost a blindness to that huge number of people who are white and are in trouble. Uh, we will be right back. We're in, just in trouble with time with Ben Jealous. His new book is just out. Never forget our people were always free. A parable of American healing. We'll be right back. The Michael Medved Show, all across America. It's an honor to talk to you because I think you got the best talk show in the in the United States. Thank um, you, I agree. This is the Michael Medved Show. Pleasure speaking to Ben Jealous. He is the former head of the NAACP. He uh, was recently appointed executive director of Sierra Club uh, on the environmental side of things. He is the author of a new book called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, which is a phrase he learned from his grandmother who only recently passed away at age 105. Sounds like a remarkable woman. And you meet lots of personalities from a totally remarkable, totally American uh, family in uh, the book, Never Forget Our People, We're Always Free. We are talking right before the break. I, I raised the issue of this term white privilege, which, as you know, infuriates a lot of people who hear it, who think about their own families, white families, that have been anything but privileged, uh, that have uh, suffered from uh, uh, poverty and hopelessness and family dissolution. It's the world of uh, J.D. Vance writes about in Hillbilly Elegy yep. and so yep. much else, and, and immigrant families as well. My, my grandfather, uh, who came over to this country in the early 20th century, 
was a barrel maker and had never been to school. And um, so what, what do you say to people who believe that the emphasis on white privilege that you hear so much about today is really something dividing rather than healing racial divides? Yeah, generally, I think taking academic terms into the public square, it just, it's just a bad idea. You know, it's just a bad idea. There's really no good that can come of it. The way that we need to talk in politics is the way that we talk in our congregations, the way that we talk in our communities, and increasingly the way that we talk across, you know, racial lines in our families. A lot of conservatives, a lot of progressives, you know, have mixed families now. Um, and I think nobody doubts, you know, I mean, it's just scientific, for example, um, that like for your first job in the minimum wage economy, that a white man with a felony record is a slightly better chance than a black man with no felony record of getting a job. Um, I think if you wanted to term it maybe white advantage, but privilege, you're right, it sends people right to all the fam the poverty that they've dealt with, the struggles that they've dealt with, the drug addiction. I mean, I look at my uncle, who's a manager in a lumber yard, as he always has been, and, um, you know, he... Uh, He's he's had he's been up against a lot and he's dealt with a lot with 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 one of his kids who's had a tough time, um, and he'll concede you know that like when applying for a job you know he probably gets you know a second look in a way that the black guy might not, um, but you start talking about privilege he's not sure what privilege he's had, and he has a strong case to make you know I think rather than like just assuming and saying like that the the white experience is this, and then using some academic term what we need to do is listen to each other, talk to each other, find common cause. You know, that's how Newt Gingrich and I, for example, figured out that we were both committed to shrinking America's prison systems, making sure that people who were drug addicted got rehab. You know, that's how Nathan Deal, the Tea Party-backed governor of Georgia, as I talked about in the book, and Stacey Abrams and I all worked together, playing our different roles. She is minority leader. He is governor. Me is the, kind of the outside agitator passed through the uh, sweeping criminal justice reforms in, in, in Georgia a decade ago. Um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in his candor, you know, he's probably the, the closest living equivalent we have to John McCain in a lot of ways, in part because he comes out of competitive sports, if you will. And, you know, I wanted to go sit down with him and ask him for help opening up employment opportunities for you know, men and women coming out of prison, a lot of whites, a lot of blacks, a lot of Latinos in California. And he looked at me and he said, of course, Ben. He said, you know, I was a bodybuilder, like, as if anybody could forget. He said, <laughs> like, half the guys in the gym had gone to prison, and they all need jobs, Ben. They all need jobs. Right, because it may, being <laughs> not, it's, it's not so easy to get a, a professional bodybuilder job. You, you have lie number three that you talk about in the book uh, is a lie that says racism only hurts black people and people of color, which, uh, which we're, we're getting close to here what is the main destructive impact on uh white people uh that that you perceive from racism trapping folks in poverty you know the the white poor are essentially invisible right now it used to be that way with the black poor during the great depression all the images in the media of the poor were almost always white people after the civil rights movement it's been almost always black and brown people and it has a profound impact on our society. It, it frankly leaves a lot of folks wondering why they should help the poor because they don't see the, the faces of their families reflected. 
And yet those decisions hurt all the poor, white and black. And again, there's almost twice as many whites in poverty as blacks. The um, the trick, you know, is quite frankly, for the, you know, if we want to move forward, would be for the media to show the full face of the social problem. And when we do that, in fact, people move forward. An example, uh, Mike is, um, if I can call you, Mike is, is uh, uh, the opiate addiction problem. It used to be that we only showed black folks, frankly. We talked about it as criminality. We locked people up for addiction. And then a bunch of sheriffs in the Mid-South and the Midwest, frankly, were burying people that they went to high school with, and they decided to release the photos of the corpses every week from opiate addiction, from heroin, from pills, from all of it. And it turned the tide of social opinion. And suddenly people said, oh, my gosh, this is an addiction crisis. Um, and we need to deal with it as such. And part of that is that when people see faces of people like them in the media, then they realize that it's a trend. It's not just a tragedy in their own family. And, and you know, when what? you talk about your, your own family, I mean, your family, which is so remarkable, which runs to enslaved people, to Robert E. Lee himself and Dick Cheney, um, if, if you actually look at your family, given the rates of intermarriage that we have now and the almost universal approval of people marrying across racial lines, is uh, your family, um, in some senses, pointing a way to a future? You know, I, I hope so. I live in Pasadena, Maryland, which I think wrongfully has been called the most racist Maryland, you know, community in Maryland. I live here. Kathy Hughes of Radio 1 lives here. And quite frankly, people are quite lovely. But there's been some hate crimes out here, two, two of the incidents at my own house. With that said, man, you know, when I'm at the YMCA at the pool with my kids, uh, a lot of families wearing conservative movement T-shirts or hats uh, have black grandchildren, you know, old white grandchildren, you know, old white grandparents pouring a lot of love into their black grandchildren. And um, and that's just the future of this country. You know, people fall in love and they really don't care what anybody thinks anymore. And, you know, we've gotten rid of all the laws. And we just need, need to understand that, um, you know, that love that, you know, two high school kids can feel for each other is something that we can actually multiply throughout this country. But it's going to require us listening to each other, dealing with each other as individuals, and also, frankly, being willing to be vulnerable and share the, the, the common struggles. You know, I've buried a couple family members to homicide. I buried some to suicide, too. When I was a teenager... I was freaked out because there was a, t a surge in black teen suicide. But when I dug into the numbers, suddenly I, I realized that the biggest demographic of people dying from bullets in this country, the most frequent, wasn't young black men of homicide or, or suicide. It was old white men from suicide. And we don't talk about it. So I called my dad, who had just turned 55 at the time, and I said, Dad, I started out doing this research to worry about guys like me. He said, I'm now really freaked out about guys like you. <laughs> And, um, you know, and we just got to talk about it so we can find, you know, we can figure out solutions for everybody. So, yeah, I think it's the future. And I think we can make a better future come faster if we actually act like we're one American family. And on that uh, that note, what could be more appropriate for this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday? The uh, book by uh, Ben Jealous is again, it's called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. A Parable of American Healing, and it's also an amazing family chronicle that will remind people, to some extent, of some of what was so captivating about Roots when that came out. 
Uh, check out the book. It's at post our website at michaelmedved.com. When we come back, some things to remember about the origins of this holiday. Some of those Republican origins of this holiday. We'll be right back. listen to you every day. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, you have to go back to 1983 uh, when this day became a holiday, when we decided to have the Monday closest to Dr. King's actual birthday. I believe his actual birthday was yesterday, uh, but... Uh, this is now a national, a federal holiday. And one of the things about it is there were a few outspoken Republicans who um, were opposed to commemorating Dr. King with a federal holiday. And uh, one of them uh, was a, a governor of Virginia, former governor of Virginia, was a member of the House who, when they were talking uh, about Dr. King's death and the riots that followed his death, there were terrible riots with uh, at least 43 people were killed, 27,000 arrested. Uh, there were riots all across the country. Uh, there needed to be 58,000 National Guardsmen uh, deployed. And um, there's an infamous speech that was given in the House by... Uh, William Tuck, who was a former governor of Virginia, an eight-term congressman, and while he allowed that, quote, the killing of King was a misfortune for the country, he went on to blame Dr. King for provoking his own murder because, quote, he fomented discord and strife between the races. Can you imagine? As after the assassination, we have come a very long way. And part of what made that possible was the bipartisanship, which people crave today, with which people approached the, the idea of creating a king holiday. And yes, there were people uh, who opposed it because they thought we had too many holidays. Eventually, they made room for this holiday by combining Washington's birthday, which was February 12th, with Lincoln's birthday, which was February 22nd. It's all put together now into President's Day, which is a change that I wish they hadn't made. But um, the King holiday was fought for for a long time by a guy named Newt Gingrich. And in fact, in, in the book that we we're just talking about with Ben Jealous, he gives Gingrich credit for that. And it was signed into law with... Uh, by President Reagan, which is uh, pretty amazing. The, uh, that was November 2nd of 1983, in the middle of President Reagan's first term. And, and by the way, just to give you an idea, of, uh, as, at the signing, uh, there's a recognizable young senator from Delaware. Yes, young at that time is named Biden. He, he's there. He's sort of uh, he's been around for a long time. But uh, here is the CBS News report. It's clip two uh, on Ronald Reagan's signing of the bill. Listen. 
All traces of his recent reservation and hesitation were well out of the picture today as President Reagan went ahead and signed a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. national holiday bill. With no further mention of his earlier reservations, President Reagan today signed the bill which makes Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday. Just two weeks ago, Mr. Reagan said he would have liked an unofficial holiday, such as Lincoln's birthday. I would have preferred that, but since they seem bent on uh, making it a national holiday, I believe the symbolism of that day is important enough that I would, I'll sign that legislation when it reaches my desk. At that same news conference and in a letter to a prominent conservative, the president seemed to indicate that Dr. King's patriotism might have been open to question. But today in the Rose Garden, surrounded by Dr. King's widow and dozens of civil rights leaders, Mr. Reagan had only praise for Martin Luther King. But traces of bigotry still mar America. So each year on Martin Luther King Day, let us not only recall Dr. King, but rededicate ourselves to the commandments he believed in and sought to live and sought every day. Okay, uh, and and again, the uh, today there is at least more attention than there has been, I think, in the past to the religious depth of some of Dr. King's messages. One of the things that I write about in my book, God's Hand on America, is what he called his kitchen table conversion, where he actually, and he's only talked about this in, in one occasion in his life, that he heard uh, God speaking to him directly. This was in the midst of the Montgomery bus boycott at the very beginning of his career when he's in his 20s. By the way, the whole story uh, is there. We have a special history program, not just the history of the holiday, but the history of Dr. King and his extraordinary life. It's called Providence and the Prophet, the meaning of Martin Luther King. It's at Medved History Store. And, of course, like all the other history programs for people who join uh, and subscribe as Medheads, uh, if you are a Medhead Plus member, all those history programs are yours free. Uh, John McCain, as uh, we were hearing about, is somebody whose family before gained great fame for generations in the U.S. Navy as uh, four-star admirals, his father and his grandfather. McCain's father had been, uh, family had been a slave-owning family, and he initially opposed in Arizona where things were very uh, very controversial about that holiday. They, um, um, they, McCain lip, began by opposing the King holiday, but on April 4th, 2008, the 40th anniversary of the King assassination, he went to Memphis in the Lorraine Motel and apologized for initially opposing making MLK's birthday, a national holiday. Uh, here's what that sounded like. It's clip one. We can be slow as well to give greatness its due. A mistake I myself made long ago. I myself made long ago when I voted against a federal holiday in member of Dr. King. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong and eventually realized that in time, in time to give full support, full support for a state holiday in my home state of Arizona. I'd remind you that 
We can all be a little late sometimes in doing the right thing. And Dr. King understood this about his fellow Americans. But he knew as well in the long term, confidence in the reasonability and good heart of America is always well placed. And always, and always, that was his method in word and action to remind us of who we are and what we believe. Okay, that was in the middle of a presidential campaign against the first black nominee of any major party, Barack Obama. And of course, McCain lost that campaign. But uh, that uh, that day in the rain in Memphis, Tennessee, with uh, some of the crowd, you could hear some of the voices saying, everybody makes mistakes, and, and then others who were less kind. It's uh, it's memorable the the way that um, Senator McCain tried to get in front of that difficulty. Uh, coming up, we have the opportunity to speak to uh, Juan Williams, who is really someone who has written deeply and movingly about Dr. King and his message. And uh, by the way, so does a very conservative newspaper today. They have an editorial by the editorial board, not the New York Times, not the Washington Post, the New York Post, the conservative voice in New York. It's part of the uh, the News Corp empire of Rupert Murdoch that is um, also owns the Wall Street Journal. And... They write, were Martin Luther King alive in 2023 to celebrate his 94th birthday, what would he have to say about his nation's contentious racial landscape? America is a far different place from the nation that saw King felled by an assassin's bullet in 1968 at the age of 39. The United States has seen an African-American serve two terms as president, something King likely thought even his children would never see. Blacks routinely serve at the top levels of the cabinet, on the Supreme Court, two of them, in the Senate, as well as the House, as state governors. Indeed, race is no longer any barrier, not just to the ballot box, but to elective office. Such achievements surely would cheer Dr. King, for it was all a long time coming, and it came about because the movement of which Dr. King was the public face fundamentally transformed America's sensibility. So where do we go from here? We'll be talking about that coming up with Juan Williams and more. Uh, will it be stopped by a debt ceiling? That and more coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth. 